Well, if you would, go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles with me. And let's open them together to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. The book of Genesis, chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to grab one from the uh, the seats in front of you. Uh, And those Bibles, our passage this morning is on page 16. We come uh, now to the climax of the account of Abraham's life. Uh, We've been moving verse by verse in our study of Genesis, and particularly in this season of our church's life. We've been uh, moving verse by verse through this study of Abraham's life. We've seen that he's been identified in the Scriptures as a man of faith. He is the father of those who believe. In his life, we have been witnessing something of what a Christian should expect as he lives a life of trust in God. And so, appropriately, we've been calling this series The Life of Faith. And we're nearing the end of that study. At this point, Abraham has become quite an old man, even by the standards of his own day. We've been walking with him for a while. He, like we who are Christians, had his life suddenly interrupted by God. He was a a pagan man from a pagan family in a pagan city, and God broke through and changed his life. He was called, like many of us in this room, he was called to trust God and to follow his word, whatever that would mean, wherever that would take him. And Abraham stepped out and followed God. He had no idea where this life of faith would lead him when he first left his hometown of Ur. Abraham was given promises, precious promises of God's favor and love, and they are what have sustained him as he's gone through the various trials and tribulations of his life. Just like you and I, we have precious promises that God uses to sustain us. We didn't know Christians in this room. We didn't know where God was going to take us when He first called us and brought us to faith, did we? We had no idea what the journey would look like. But like Abraham, we do have promises that have sustained us and helped us along the way. We've seen real evidences of grace in Abraham's life. We've seen Abraham commune with God We've seen Abraham act sacrificially for the sake of others as he did for his nephew Lot on more than one occasion. We've seen Abraham intercede for others as he did for the cities of the plain. We've seen that Abraham was was spiritually minded, that he cared more about the things of God than the things of this world, that that he was willing to give in order to honor the priest-king of God, Melchizedek, but he would give no honor to the king of Sodom. He cared more about heavenly things than the things that he could see and touch. Dear friends, we who have been called by God, we who have been brought into this life of following Him wherever that might lead, do we see similar evidences of grace in our own lives? 
Are we finding ourselves less and less enthralled with the things of this world and more and more longing for the world to come? Have we begun to lose our taste for the things of this world? And have we become more concerned and more delighted with the things of God? We've seen Abraham not only in his best moments, we've seen Abraham at his worst moments. We've seen seasons of weak faith in Abraham's life. We've seen circumstances in which he failed to trust the word that God had given to him. And we've seen the painful consequences that have followed Abraham's failure to believe. We've also seen God providentially overrule all that took place in Abraham's life, working good from both the good and the bad. Working good from Abraham's victories and Abraham's failures. I hope you understand, church, that what we've been witnessing over the last many months has been the maturing of a believer throughout his life. After decades of being seasoned as a man of God, we now come to Genesis 22, in which the biggest test of all is brought into Abraham's life. If Abraham's life was a movie, Genesis 22 would be the moment of greatest drama, the moment of greatest intensity and greatest emotion. This passage is, I think, hands down, the most moving passage in the book of Genesis. Many would say that it is second to the cross as far as moving passages in the Bible. But more than being emotionally moving, this is a passage that is theologically rich and full of helpful instruction and truth for us. We are going to be in Genesis 22 for the next several weeks. I want us to sort of live here. I hope that during the week uh, between Sundays, you will be reading over this passage, meditating on this passage, going to Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon and some of these guys and looking at what they have to say about the passage. I want you to dwell in this passage because it is very rich. And I also ask that you will pray with me that God will use this passage in a mighty way in the life of our church. This is particularly powerful. And if God's Spirit chose to do so, He could easily use this passage to do some very radical things in our lives, in our families, in our church. And so I pray that He will, and I hope that you will pray that He will do so over the next several weeks. This morning, we're just going to look at the first two verses. Look with me at verses 1 And two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, Here am I. He, God, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. After these things, says verse 1, 
It does not mean simply after Genesis 21. It does not mean simply uh, after the things that took place with Abimelech that we looked at last week. It does mean that, but I think it means much more than that. These three words are telling us that this test comes after everything else that we've seen since Genesis 12 concerning Abraham. You see, this test is not coming to Abraham at this time by accident. The timing of this test has been carefully planned. Had God brought this test into Abraham's life before Abraham was ready, not only would Abraham have failed, but this trial could very well have turned Abraham against God and destroyed his soul. So the timing of this test is very important. It is only now after many smaller tests in Abraham's life, some failures, some victories, that this one now comes. You see, believers, the tests that God brings into our lives do not merely reveal the quality of our faith, though tests do that. Tests do reveal the quality of our faith. But more than that, God uses tests to sharpen and to shape our faith. Our trust in God is molded through trials. Through Abraham's failures, he has learned that trusting God is the better way, the way that will save him from hardship. Through Abraham's victories, Abraham has learned that God is faithful and that he will bless those who trust in him. And so now, after all, only after Abraham's faith has grown and been shaped by many lesser trials does this one come. As far as we can tell, Genesis 22 takes place a decade, at least a decade, after Genesis 21. We'll see later that his son Isaac, who was just being weaned in Genesis 21 is now old enough to, to have a, a load of wood set upon his back and he's able to carry it himself up a mountain. He's at least a teenager, we think. Some uh, suspect that he might have even been up to 20 or 21 years old. So he's now a young man. Allow me this morning to make three observations from the first two verses of this text. Three observations. First, Note the author of this test. The author of this test is God Himself. It is not Satan who comes to Abraham and instructs him to sacrifice his son. It is God. Satan will tempt us to do something wicked. Satan will tempt us because he hates us and because he longs for our destruction. Satan will tempt us because he hates God and longs for God to be dishonored. Satan tempts us in order that he might destroy us and bring dishonor to the glory of God. God tests us not to do evil, but to do good and to do us good. 
God tests us in order to strengthen us. God tests us in order to make us spiritually fit, to make us more holy and better able to live for His glory. Abraham does not see it yet. God is loving him in this trial. There's a world of difference between when God tests us and when Satan tempts us. And yet, we have to be honest. This is a very unusual trial. It is Satan who tempts us to do evil. God tests us for our good, and yet it sure looks like what God is calling Abraham to do here is not only evil, but but particularly evil. For a father to kill his own son. It's not just morally wrong, it's, it's offensive to every fiber of love in our beings. It's for this very reason that some have suggested that this was the test and that Abraham failed the test. When I was in college, I remember discussing this text in an Old Testament class and particularly what we discussed was the proposal that Abraham failed the test because what he should have done was said to God, No. No, I, I will not sacrifice my son. The pagans participate in this sort of behavior. But you, O God, you do not do this. You must be testing my morals. But I will not sacrifice my son. According to this view, Abraham failed the test by going through with what God called him to do. Church, that is precisely the wrong way to read this passage. That is precisely the wrong way to read this passage. Yes, it is wrong for people to murder, but it is not wrong for God to take the life of any He chooses. All humanity belongs to God. You, me, our loved ones belong to God. He sets the days of our lives, whether they be many or few. In this case, it was God, not Abraham, who determined, at least it seems, though we know the end of the story, that it was Isaac's time to die. Had Abraham gone through with this, he would not have been culpable of murder. The reason that this trial was so difficult, and such a difficult trial of faith for Abraham, besides the fact that it it required him to kill his own son, is that God's command made absolutely no sense to Abraham's mind. I mean, looking back on everything Abraham had learned about God, everything he knew about God, everything God had had told him, this made no sense. God had promised that it would be through Isaac that he would be blessed and the, the world would be blessed. How can God now say, kill Isaac? It seemed to contradict every word God had ever spoken before. What was God doing here? Friends, in this situation, Abraham could not lean on his own understanding. He could only trust 
the Lord with all his heart. He could know by faith that God is not a fool. He could know by faith that God knows what He's doing, that God is not unfaithful, that God's ways are always best, and though it did not make sense to Him yet, He would step out, trust God, and obey. Kind of reminds us of how this whole journey started. Right? Way back in... Well, look look in verse 2. Look in verse 2. Do you see where God says to Abraham, Go to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you? Of which I... In other words, He doesn't even tell him which mountain to go to yet. He just says, I want you to go to the mountains of Moriah, and I'll give you more instructions when you get there. Does that remind you kind of how this all started in Genesis 12? Abraham, I want you to leave your hometown. Oh, by the way, I'm not telling you where you're going yet. Trust me. Trust me. God only revealed things to Abraham on a need-to-know basis. And even now, just as decades before, Abraham is to go to a place of which God will tell him in his own time. God is the author of this test. But let's, let's look second at the nature of this test. Namely, it is a test of faith. It is a test of faith. Everything hinges on what Abraham believes about God. Does he really believe that God knows what he's doing? Does he really believe that God is good to give a command like this? Does he really believe that God is wise? Does he really believe that God's word to him about the blessings coming to him in the world through Isaac are still going to come true? Is he willing to risk his son's life on that? I don't want to get away from my notes because we have a lot to cover, but it just occurred to me, isn't that exactly what we who are parents are doing with our children by raising them in a Christian home and pointing them to the gospel? Aren't we risking the souls of our children on the word of God? Everything we do, we're doing because we believe this word is true. And if this word isn't true, boy, we have really messed up our kids. So it comes down to do you believe God or not? In order to test Abraham's faith, God strikes at that which was most dear to Abraham's heart, his beloved son Isaac. Abraham, God called it was, it was probably in a vision, by the way, that this took place, that God was speaking to Abraham. It was probably at night. Abraham used to have another name, as you'll remember. His name used to be Abram. It was God who changed his name to Abraham. Do you remember what the name Abraham means? I mean, Abraham means father of nations. <laughs> father of a multitude. By changing Abraham's name, God was giving yet another assurance to Abraham that he would fulfill his promise of making Abraham the father of many nations. And Abraham's hopes of becoming the father of a multitude are all bound up in this one boy. Ishmael has been expelled from the family. It is through Isaac that Abraham's offspring will be named. 
all of Abraham's hopes of God's word coming true are bound up in Isaac. One commentator said that uh, Abraham's quiver was full, but it was all through Isaac that his quiver would be full. How ironic then that God should call out Abraham by that name, his name, father of a multitude, Abraham. Sacrifice the one through whom I've told you you would be the father of a multitude. Abraham hears God call out his name. He doesn't know what's coming. He simply responds, here am I. Do you see that in verse 1? Here am I. Do those three words remind you of anything else in the Bible? Here am I. Mind you of Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah coming into the temple, seeing the, this, this vision of God, hearing God cry out, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah declares, Here am I, send me. So with that same sort of uh, submissive nature, it seems, we see Abraham call, Here am I. He's like a soldier ready to receive orders from his commander. He's like a son ready to hear what his father would have him do. Though, of course, he never imagined what God would have him do. I want to walk through verse 2 together. Um, if you're willing, put, put your finger on the word take. Put your finger on the word take. I want you to see this. That word take is an imperative. It's a command. God is not asking Abraham to consider doing this. He is giving Abraham a command. Abraham is now duty bound by God to do what he is being commanded. Put your finger on the words, your son. You see those words, your son? Had God told Abraham to sacrifice a hundred sheep or a thousand bulls, and to offer them all up in sacrifice on, on the mountains of Moriah, he probably would have gladly done that rather than sacrifice his son Isaac. The fact that God calls for his son shows that God is hitting at the most tender spot of Abraham's heart. It is though God is putting his finger on the very thing that competes most with God for Abraham's affections and love. And God says, Abraham, here is what you seem perhaps to love almost as much as me. Sacrifice him to me. You see, it is, it is good to love God's gifts. But it is wicked and it is foolish and it is harmful when we begin to love any of God's gifts more than God Himself. Your family, your work, the other gifts of God are worthy of a measure of your affection. These things ought to be loved by you. These things ought to be embraced by you and treated well by you. But as soon as your affections for one of God's gifts, even your family, begins to steal your heart away from God, no good will come of it. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus was not telling us to treat our families or our own lives with contempt. Rather, he was telling us that we must be willing to reject and part with anyone, including our own necks, in order to follow him. The moment our family becomes more important to us than God, we've ceased to love our family. Did you hear that? The moment our family becomes more important to us than God, we have stopped loving our family. The most important way that we can love our families is by loving our God supremely, by serving His Son preeminently. When God is first in our lives, blessings will fall down onto our families and onto others. But the second that our families become idols to us, we will begin setting a bad example. We will begin doing our families harm. A mother that loves her children more than God will teach her children, whether she means to or not, that there is more happiness and more fulfillment to be found in motherhood than in knowing Christ. Now that's a lie. And if her children grow up and and start pursuing family life as the ultimate source of satisfaction, as the ultimate source of fulfillment, they will come up empty. The only never-ending well of peace and joy and blessing is God, not His gifts, God. And so the moment we start loving anything more than God, delighting in anything more than Him, trusting anything more than Him, that very moment our lives begin to preach a false gospel. And thus, if we begin to love our families more than God, we have ceased to love our families at all. So you see, God aims straight for the love of Abraham, which could become an idol for him, His son Isaac. And God is doing this not just for Abraham's sake, but for Isaac's sake. At the end of this chapter, no one will have learned more or benefited more from this experience than Abraham, except maybe Isaac. Isaac receives an incredible life lesson here. Isaac will truly see in the example of his father just how much God is really worth. Do you see the words only son in verse 2? Only son. Yes, Abraham has another son, Ishmael, born during a season of unbelief in which he went into his wife's handmaiden. Ishmael is no longer a part of the family. His claim to an inheritance from Abraham has been lost. In the eyes of God, at least as regards the promises, Isaac is now Abraham's only son. The son through whom all the promises about a nation to come and the blessings to the world are going to come true. This is the son that Abraham is to sacrifice. So you see, Abraham isn't just, I'm sorry, God isn't just striking at Abraham's love for his son. God is striking here at every promise God ever made to Abraham. Friends, as precious 
as the promises of God are, and they are precious, even His promises can become idols to us. Even His promises. It comes down to this, Abraham, do you love me for my sake, or do you love me only because what you're going to get from me? Christian, is God simply a means to another end for you? Do you love God for the same reason you love money? Because He'll get you stuff? Like heaven? Or have you truly come to love Him? Have you truly come to love His wisdom, His power, His mercy, His righteousness, Him? Has there been some promise of God that has become more precious to you than God Himself? Why do you want to go to heaven? What's the first thing that comes in your mind when you answer that question? Why do I want to go to heaven? Is it just to escape hell? It's a good reason. Is it to see loved ones who have passed on before? It's a good reason. But that must not be the preeminent reason. Do you desire to go to heaven because it is there that you will get to see your Savior and live in His presence forever? Because that's the goal of the gospel. And that's the goal of salvation. And that is what God is doing through the tests that He brings into our lives. Is He is refining our faith. He is getting the dross out until we become pure of heart. Longing and loving Him most of all. Wanting Him most of all. Finding our delight in Him above all else. And everything else in regards to Him. So that we can honestly say, I love this and I love it for Christ's sake. I love my wife for Christ's sake. I love my children for Christ's sake. Even littler things. We'll go over there, we can say, I love these mashed potatoes. And we can honestly say, I love them because they're a gift from Christ and they point me to His glories. Everything in regards to Christ. Do you remember the story of Job? God identified Job as a blameless man, an upright man, one who fears God, one who turns away from evil. And do you remember what Satan's response was to God concerning Job? Of course Job loves you, God. Look what you've done for him. Right? Everything he puts his hand to prospers. Look at all that he owns. Look at this big family that he has. Satan's wager was that if God took all of those blessings away, Satan would no longer love God. I wonder if Satan made that wager about you. Would he be right or wrong? Sure, right now, it's easy to love God. We have so much. He's cared for us in so many ways. But should God allow you to lose it all? Should God cause you to lose every penny to your name? Should God, for His purposes, cause you to witness the death of every person you love? 
Should God, for His purposes, put you in a hospital bed with a painful, incurable disease, no money to your name, no loved ones there to care for you, would you still love Him? Would you still somehow be able to say, I don't understand it, I don't get why He has brought all of this pain and all of this suffering in my life, but doggone it, He's wise and He's good and I'm going to trust. Or as Job said it, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's the nature of testing. It's a test of faith. It causes you to give up something you hold dear, and then it asks, do you still love God now? Will you still trust Him now? We need to speed along. Put your fingers on the words burnt offering. Do you see the the words burnt offering? Burnt offering was an offering in which the victim, usually an animal like a lamb, was slain and then burnt upon an altar of wood. The aroma of the sacrifice was said to bring pleasure to God. The fact that God is calling Abraham not just to kill his son, but to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering makes absolutely clear that this is an act that God is calling Abraham to do to show that his highest allegiance is to God. He is sacrificing Isaac to God. Put your finger on the word Moriah. Moriah. This is the land of Moriah. 50 miles from where Abraham now is in Beersheba. It is God's appointed place for the sacrifice. Question, why make Abraham walk 50 miles to do this? Why? Why go to the land of Moriah? Why not sacrifice in Beersheba? Well, the land of Moriah will be better known to us as the region of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It is here, centuries later, that on one of those mountains of Moriah, Solomon will build the temple. And sacrifices will take place in the nation of Israel for centuries, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some believe that Solomon's temple was built directly on the spot where God led Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The temple mound. The place where today stands Islamic shrines, the the Dome of the Rock. It was no accident that God led Abraham there to make his sacrifice. That is one way of showing us that this passage is really all about Christ. And in a couple of weeks on our Lord's Supper Sunday, we're going to spend the whole time, it won't be a long time, but we're going to spend the whole time looking at how this passage points directly to the cross of Christ. All right. Consider this. God is not just calling Abraham to kill his son. That would be heart-wrenchingly painful. But if that was all that required, Abraham might could have gotten himself worked up. He might could have closed his eyes and just gone to Isaac's room while he was asleep and just got it over with quick. Or he might could have put some, a little bit of poison in his cup and that way maybe it could have been a, a, a slow, a, a painless death. But no. God is calling Abraham to walk with his son for 50 miles, knowing where they're going. God is calling Abraham to climb up a mountain with his son, all the while knowing what he's about to do. 
God is calling Abraham to have to have all of the carefulness and the seriousness and the sober-mindedness of preparing a sacrifice for God. He has to build the altar all the while with his son watching. This will not be over quick. The next three days will be torture for Abraham. And if we didn't know better, we might think God is being sadistic. He's making Abraham do the very last thing Abraham could ever want to do, and he's making it last for days. I wonder how many of us would have lost all of our religion and turned away from God, never to pray to Him again if a test like this came our way. Well, very quickly... Final observation, the motive of the test, namely, God's motives towards Abraham in all of this are good. God is doing Abraham good here. God is loving Abraham here. God does not find some sort of perverse pleasure in commanding Abraham to kill his son. God grieves with his people when they grieve. He suffers with them when they suffer. God only ordains difficult and painful trials for His children so that through them He may bring them into greater blessing and greater joy. Perhaps the best way to see this is to remember the words of Jesus in John 8, 56, when Jesus stood before a Jewish crowd and said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does it mean that Abraham saw Jesus' day? There was some sense in which Abraham had a special knowledge of the day of Christ to come. Abraham was given by God a unique understanding of the gospel. Yes, there were others in Abraham's day who knew something of the gospel. Melchizedek, for example. But Abraham was given a glimpse of the heart and the mind of God that went far beyond anything anybody else in his day had known. And it is during this trial that God is giving him that great gift, that precious gift. Abraham knew that God was going to bless the world through his son Isaac. Abraham almost certainly knew about what was spoken back in Genesis 3.15, the promise of, a, of, a, of one to come who would set all things right, a promised Messiah. It is possible, though I can't prove it, that Abraham had already discerned that it would be from Isaac that the promised Messiah would come. Now, as Abraham takes his own son to the very land in which God's son would one day be sacrificed, what is God giving Abraham here but a preview of the gospel? As Abraham makes preparations and works for the day and time when the sacrifice is to be made, he is surely filled with grief. But so also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And no 
No doubt the death of his son was the hardest thing the father ever did. And Abraham, through these three days, is being brought into the very heart and mind of God. Abraham will see the principle of substitutionary atonement played out in front of him when a ram takes the place of Isaac, as we will see later. Perhaps most important of all, Abraham, who will spend three days thinking of his son as a dead man, will have his son return to him. And he will have a preview of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much of all of this that we're going to unpack over the next several weeks, how much of all this Abraham really understood, we we don't know. But it does seem that through this difficult, painful three days, God was giving Abraham a sweet gift, one of the most precious gifts in the world. This understanding of the gospel. He was seeing Jesus' day. He was seeing the glory of the gospel displayed. It is because God revealed these things to Abraham that Abraham in the rest of the Bible is known as the friend of God. God shared things with Abraham, the most important things in the world, in a day when no one else knew them. All this was going to be given to Abraham, and in the end it would not even cost him his son. No doubt, Abraham never loved his son more than as he and Isaac walked back from the mountains of Moriah to go home and see Sarah. You see, in ways we may never fully understand, God was loving Abraham in this trial. God had happy designs. God had pleasant plans unfolding for Abraham. The bud would be unpleasant, but sweet would be the flower. So here in verse 2, Abraham doesn't know any of that. Abraham doesn't know how the story will end. All he hears is the command that is crushing his heart. And he must now decide whether he will trust God or not. Does his God truly love him? Is God truly wise? Could it be that behind this frowning providence, God hides a smiling face? Abraham had learned from his earlier trials. And so not understanding, but trusting God, he steps out in obedience. Well, Friends, it may very well be this morning we have some here who do not know what it is to trust God through His Son, Jesus Christ. You continue to live every day, ignoring God's commands, living life as you please, You may not even realize that every day you live is another day in which all the sins that you are committing are stacking up against you. And the holy wrath of God against all your evil deeds is a day closer than it was the day before. Friend, think about the Father sacrificing His only begotten Son, the Son that He loved so supremely in order that sinners like you and I could be saved. You may think your sins are no big deal. But I challenge you to tell that to God. Tell that to the God who poured out His wrath on the Son He loved for sins, like yours and mine. 
Jesus was perfect and spotless, the only person who has ever lived who did not deserve the condemnation of God, yet Jesus bore it and bore it completely for all who would believe on Him. You tell Jesus your sins are no big deal. Have you not seen how crooked our hearts are? That so many things God tells us to hate, we love. And so many things God tells us to love, we find no joy in. What is wrong with us? What's wrong with us is that we're broken. We're crooked deep down, we're twisted. And our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not a buzzkill trying to keep you from those things that you want to do. He just truly loves you. He genuinely knows what is best for you. And could it be that you are living a life of rejecting His love, rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ, rejecting His wisdom? Could it be that you are walking a path of foolishness that leads to a very bad end and God is calling you to turn to Him and to be saved? Friends, let me tell you straight up. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you are living a life of foolishness and it will have a very bad end in a place called hell. That is clear in the Scriptures. The Christian life is not an easy life. Trials are part of it. Only blind foolishness, though, would keep you from coming to Christ. He walks with those who are His. He keeps us safe. He brings us safely to Himself to be with Him forever. God is good. God is wise. And if you will trust Him, He will forgive you your sins. He will adopt you as His child. He will bring you safely into heaven. And He will allow you to be with Him forever. He will put His own Spirit into you and begin working to make you the kind of person that is a real blessing to others, that will cause you to truly love others with a real definition for love. He will give your life Real meaning, eternal value as He works through you to point others to Christ. Why would anyone not come to Christ? It's because we're blind, because we're hard-hearted, because we love our sins too much. But dear friend, if somehow by God's grace this morning you are seeing your need for a Savior... Run to Him with every bit of strength you have. Whatever ability you have in your soul, you run to Christ and you throw yourself upon Him and you say, Jesus, I want to believe. I want to be Yours. Help my unbelief. Cause me to love You. And friends, if you do that, He will hear and He will answer. and He will save. We have much to be thankful for, don't we, church? God has been very, very good to us. Let's pray together. Let's all of us now take a few moments.
Let's take a few moments to uh, just respond to our Father uh, in private. Just think about the things that you've heard this morning.